Hey everybody, Johnny Holston here with Capella Athletics. This is episode one of Running Biz, and the Running Biz podcast is created to do a couple of things. I really wanted to draw attention to the sport and how the economy of it works, um, and how the athletes that we follow earn their money. We're not going to talk about you know specific dollar amounts when it comes to specific athletes or anything crazy like that. I just want to give a general uh, running economy 101 to people that are interested in how it works for the athletes and how they make their money. Uh, so this will cover a couple of different topics all relating to the athlete. Um, I've had some questions asked about an agent when it comes to these topics. So keep in mind, no, episode number two will be all about the agent. So and how the agent applies to the topics that we've discussed today. I wanted to kick things off with the athlete because that's most uh, exciting. Those are the people we follow, and they're the ones that uh, do a lot of good for the sport and competing. So next episode will be about the agent. Episode one is about the athlete and how the athlete makes their money. Um, a couple of housekeeping things before we get going here. Uh, this this podcast is just going to be me discussing the things that I've learned about the sport over being a, a collegiate runner and also working with Capella Athletics for a while. I've had the opportunity to, to spend days with really accomplished people in our sport, and uh, they've been very gracious to talk to me about lots of things, um, agents, athletes, coaches, all you know, everybody involved, um, even some marketing directors and things like that. So uh, these are things that I have confirmed with multiple sources in our sport. So this is accurate information uh, to the best of my knowledge and to the best of very uh, respected individuals in the sports knowledge. So um, while specifics and what I discuss might vary the general framework of this is accurate this is how athletes make their money and I'm hoping that uh, you guys the listeners will enjoy it and learn something um, so so thank you very much to the athletes that um, helped with this um, I, I want to point out Sam Parsons FaceTime me for like a good hour talking about some of these things and he was gracious to take the time out of his day to do that so I really appreciate that that's just one of the many people that um, help me with this with this uh, episode. So, uh, feel free to send me your feedback over to at Capella Athletics on Instagram and at, at Johnny Holston as well. Um, you can listen to this episode and all of our past ones on thestridereport.com. Um, guys, the Stride Report has been huge for Capella Athletics. They they do an awesome job covering Division One, Two, II, and Three men's and women's cross country and track. And their website is starting to take things over, man. They went from like a few hundred followers a year ago to now they're pushing like 2,500. So they've blown us out of the water in terms of following. And they are they are starting to close some ground on, on other uh, journalism outlets, I guess you could say. Uh, people that are kind of getting fed up with uh, the flow tracks and the runner space of the world are really starting to turn to the stride report. Those guys do an awesome job. Many riders over there, and Garrett Zatlin, the founder, does a great job as well. So uh, be sure to check out thestridereport.com and listen to some of our past episodes as well. Once again, feel free to send me uh, the topics that you would like discussed on our next episodes. And yeah, thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, we hope you enjoy this this new twist to Capella Athletics, and I, I think you will. Uh, so feel free to sit back, uh, get yourself a cup of coffee, and enjoy. Right, so today we're talking about the uh, ways that professional uh, track and field athletes and distance runners make their money. Uh, there's 
there's several ways this happens, and I want to preface this whole conversation by saying uh, one thing, and that is um, the agent, the the athlete's agent, is going to be at the forefront of almost all of this. Uh, should an athlete choose to sign with an agency, that agency is responsible for working out the fine details regarding these um, specific income um, streams that I'm going to mention now. So after talking with a couple of uh, people who uh, talked to me about this episode and listened to my first draft of this episode, and um, it, it became clear that I need to stress the fact that an agent is involved in all of these elements. However, I decided not to talk about the agent specifically in this episode because I wanted the listeners to understand these things I'm going to mention now before talking about agent specific. So here are the main ways that an athlete makes money and then lastly, or in one element, loses money, but that is through a base contract, through performance bonuses, they can lose money through reductions, and they can also uh, gain money by appearance fees. Um, let's talk first about the base contract. Um, what is a base contract? This is pretty simple and straightforward. A base contract is the amount that you sign for to represent a company. Um, maybe it's 50000 for an athlete. Maybe it's well more than that depending on the level of athlete. Maybe it's less than that if it's an intro contract, so to speak. Uh, what's the deal with the base contract or the, with your base salary though? The base salary is just a number that is more often than not going to be very different than the actual uh, dollar amount an athlete earns. And this is for uh, many reasons. This is because of performance bonuses. This is also because of reductions. Um, so let's say an athlete signs a contract worth $75,000 annually um, and they... Um, that's their regular salary. They get paid that quarterly, monthly, however however it works out with a specific brand. They might make way more than that um, by, let's say they make 20000 in prize money uh, at the end of the, by the end of the year. So they'll now be at 95000 So that's just an example of why the base salary is just a number. That's hopefully what you can plan on making throughout the year, depending on your ability to uh, reach the, qualif- you know, the, the, uh, the standards that are written in your contract. So now we're going to talk about performance bonuses, and there's three examples I'm going to give here. There's a ranking and place-related bonus, there's a time-related bonus, and a rollover bonus. And uh, these three bonuses, often you'll find combinations of all of those in a contract, um, and these will add on top of a base salary. A a place or a ranking-related bonus would be something like this. Let's say an athlete um, is gearing up for the USA Championships in a world's year, a year where the world championships are coming and the contract says if you make USA's we'll give you $3,000 if you make uh, the USA final you'll get $10,000 and if you make the world team you'll get $50,000 something like that again um, these numbers are very generic and very basic so this is not a going rate by any means for an example like this but that gives you an idea of how it works the next example is a time-related bonus, and this could be for a track athlete maybe hitting a world standard or something like that, but the specific example I'm going to use is a men's marathon runner. Um, the, a contract might say if you run sub-214 or an Olympic A standard, something like that, you'll get a $10,000 bonus. Uh, if you run sub-210, you'll get a $35,000 bonus, and if you run sub-205, you'll get a $75,000 bonus. So that's kind of similar to the place of the ranking-related bonus, just in a different uh, 
setting, so to speak, of, of a men's marathon runner. Another example of a bonus would be like a rollover bonus, which this would be, uh, let's say, an a- an athlete is um, has a has a bonus included in their contract where if they make uh, the Olympic team or the world's team, they will the next annual uh, year that they're on under contract with that brand, they'll make an increase. So let's say your salary now is fifty thousand dollars. You make the Olympic team. And your contract says if you do that next year, you'll be worth $75,000. That's kind of how you can get a bump up in your contract uh, by performing in a certain way. One thing to keep in mind is that more often than not, probably 99% of the time, these bonuses are going to relate to things like uh, world standards, U.S. standards, making teams, um, American records, that type of stuff. Uh, They're not going to... They're not going to give you money for running uh, meaning a meaningless time. Okay, now we're going to talk about reductions. And this is kind of an unfortunate reality of the sport where if you don't meet, meet certain um, criteria in your contract, your base salary could be reduced. So it's important to point out, I'll talk about this more in the next episode when we talk about agents, but... Um, it's important to point out that some contracts might have a lower base salary with no reductions in it, while others have a much higher base salary with reductions in it. So um, in that example, the athlete on the lower base might end up making more than the athlete with the higher base, depending on how reductions unfold. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of reductions here. Um, the first one is uh, you must... Uh, make the USA final or you'll lose your contract. Perhaps that might be an athlete in the last year of their contract and if they don't make the final, um, they won't be renewed or something like that. And that's that's unfortunate, but that, that is the reality of the sport if you don't perform at the level you um, have listed in your contract. Another example would be um, get top five at USA's and uh, or you get reduced by 30%, something like that. So there's an example where maybe an athlete uh, is on a one hundred thousand uh, dollar base salary, and they miss that that uh, top five at USA, so they get reduced down to sixty six thousand. Well, already um, an athlete that would have had a seventy thousand dollar deal with no reductions is making more than them ne- the next year. So that's kind of that's how it works right there. That's a good example of a reduction. Another one, and this is. Um, this is a sensitive subject, so I'm going to be careful with how I discuss this one because uh, it's a heated topic in the world of uh, professional track and field. But um, this is an example of a reduction, and that would be like you must race um, at least every six months in a USATF sanctioned event, or you'll lose um, your base salary altogether, something like that. Um, and this is where kind of the whole pregnancy topic can come in. And so once again, like I said at the beginning of this episode, everybody's situation is different. And there are athletes who have been um, hurt by brands and in, in different ways when it comes to this topic. But in general, when we see an athlete on social media talking about how they lost all their money because they got pregnant, most of the time it's related to a reduction like this. And the reductions specifically aren't geared towards pregnancy necessarily. It's due. It's there to protect a brand so they can spend more money on their marketing um, if an athlete isn't competing. So obviously, when you have a baby, 
you're going to be out for at least six months uh, for the most part. In, in almost every scenario, you're going to need months off. So there you are. There's your six months of no racing, and that's when a brand might reduce your money. Um, this isn't necessarily a a brand saying, oh, you had a kid, so now we're not going to pay you. That's, that's not the way that it works, and that's not the way that it's understood. So this is something that I do want to talk about a little bit because I believe there's a bit of a misunderstanding. On that note, though, I believe motherhood should be celebrated, and I don't believe it's right for a brand to punish uh, an, an athlete for having a baby. So these are things where I would really like to see how the future of our sport goes. I would like to see how um, some of these female athletes that will be going pro in the future, how they use their leverage um, to say, listen, I don't want this reduction, or I want to be able to have a clause in there saying that if six months are taken off due to a pregnancy, that the reduction um, is voided, something like that. And I would like to see agents doing the same thing as well as uh, athletes with the leverage. However, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of athletes, uh, a brand when they come out of college is gonna say, here's your deal, take it or leave it. And if you're a 22 or 23 year old female runner who's probably not considering getting pregnant anytime in the future, um, that might not be in the front of their mind and so they might take the deal because they want a chance to run professionally so um, these are areas where the sport is imperfect absolutely but I don't want the public to have an idea that um, brands have like a specific penalty for runners that get pregnant more often than not it's just a standard reduction clause that is failed to be met by an athlete when they do have a baby. And I, I honestly do think that due to a lot of awareness brought in this topic, like we're going to start to see um, this this thing start to trend in a really good direction. And I, I really believe and I hope that we'll start to see brands keep their, their female athletes on payroll all the way through every uh, stage of pregnancy and, and uh, maternity leave. All right, the last thing we're going to talk about in this episode specifically is appearance fees and I want to talk I'm going to talk about more of this um, in greater detail in our second episode because there's a lot of ways that agents come into play when when it comes to these appearance fees um, I just want to talk about it briefly to kind of give you guys something to think about before our, our second episode here um, what's an example of an appearance fee well uh, like we're going to talk about the marathon in this scenario because a marathon runner, they're going to run two marathons a year, maybe maybe three. Um, we've, we have seen athletes like Sarah Hall or some of the athletes from, uh, say, like Japan run a lot more than one or two marathons in a year. But typically, you're going to only race about two marathons every single year. So why would an appearance fee make sense in this scenario? Uh, well, because when you're training hard for a marathon and you're in um, the deep, uh, the, in the weeds, so to speak, of marathon training, you're probably not going to be able to race very well in, in many other races, meaning you probably won't be able to make uh, much more prize money. So you'll have your base contract, but in order to supplement some of the prize money you might be missing out on, you'll get an, an appearance fee from the marathon to show up and race. And that's kind of the marathon acknowledging like, hey, uh, you're sacrificing some prize money to come race for us. We'll give you this to show up because one, you're adding quality to our field. And two, um, we really want uh, want you in our field, so we don't want to lose you to another marathon as well. Uh, and appearance fees, they can range big time. For example, maybe a lower level uh, athlete who has, maybe he finished uh, fourth at the USA 
TF 10K during a non-Olympic or Worlds year, uh, and they're going to make their marathon debut. They're not like a huge name. Um, they might get like $10,000 for showing up and racing if they show some promise. But a reigning champion uh, or an Olympic bronze medalist or something could pull well into the six figures for an appearance fee. Um, an example of this, which is well known in the running world, is that uh, Des Linden, in the year following um, her Boston Marathon victory, she made over seven figures. And now a lot of this is going to be due to an increase in base, uh, a per- performance bonus, that type of stuff. But once you win a major marathon like Des did, every time she toes the line anywhere else, she's going to be making significantly more than she did before. So let's say you're the returning champion of the Boston Marathon. You might get an appearance fee of like 200000 to show up, possibly even more. Um, there's rumors of world record holders pulling into uh, the seven figures just to show up for a race. So again, um, some of that is just word of mouth, but that kind of is an example of how a performance or of how an appearance fee can come into play uh, when you're racing a marathon. You can also get an appearance fee on the track. Um, let's say you are an American record uh, woman uh, in the 1500 or something like that, and um, you broke the American record, and now you're going to go run um, a meet in Europe. The meet director wants to really stack the field. He might give you a good appearance fee just to show up because he knows you're going to add quality to the field. So this doesn't just apply to road racing. One example of when appearance fees kind of hit the running media would be Galen Rupp's Olympic Trials marathon debut. Galen Rupp qualified for the Olympic Trials in 2016 by running a um, half marathon in Portland. He basically ran it alone. He soloed it and he qualified. And there was a lot of discussion about whether or not he would actually run the Olympic Trials marathon. He had never run a marathon before. And most people were saying uh, there's no way he's running this marathon because he's an Olympic silver medalist in the 10K. He could probably get a $150,000 appearance fee or something like that. And um, But instead, he's going to show up to the Olympic Trials where they don't give out appearance fees. So that was an example of when appearance fees were kind of talked about um, publicly. And it was kind of a debate whether or not he would skip out on that Olympic trials because of the appearance fees. And he ended up running it and giving up uh, an appearance fee. Maybe his agent worked something else out uh, with his sponsor behind the scenes if they wanted him to race that. But um, that's kind of an example of when appearance fees were talked about in the media. All right, everybody, that was episode one of the Running Biz series here at Capella Athletics. I hope you learned something new for sure, and I hope this episode kind of added a little bit of knowledge uh, to you as as far as how athletes make their money. Just a reminder, next time we're going to talk about um, the agent's role and all of those steps and how um, there's different tiers of professional athletes as well. So uh, be sure to tune in for that. Send me a DM. Let me know how you liked it. Also, please uh, check out our friends over at The Stride Report where you can listen to all of our past episodes and our future episodes. Uh, Garrett Zatlin is the founder over there, and he does an awesome job at running that site that covers Division One, Two, II, and Three, men's and women's cross-country and track. So please go check them out. Um, once again, yeah, send me a question on uh, Instagram or let me know how you felt about this episode at Capella Athletics or at Johnny Holston to my personal page. 
Uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. We really love getting to know our followers, and we hope that this is kind of a new uh, project that you guys are a fan of. So thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Uh, and until then, I'm Johnny Holston signing off for Capella Athletics. Yeah.